It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here. You're with Talk on TV, on radio, online and on your smart speaker. Coming up, escape from hell. Hundreds of foreign nationals, including Britons, evacuate from Gaza into Egypt for the first time since the conflict began. One in eight prisoners are released early from prison to ease overcrowding, according to new figures. Brilliant. Uh, and Storm Kieran batters Britain's coast with winds of up to two, 120 miles an hour. The worst forecast is for later today. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. We've got loads more coming up. We've got lots more stories to do. The rapid run-through continues uh, of all the big news stories that we're going to be dealing with. And, of course, this show runs until 1pm uh, uh, when Kevin O'Sullivan returns uh, to your screens. But before he disappears, he's still here. Kevin. I think that's the first time I've thrown ahead to a show that hasn't happened yet that you're in, but you're still in this one. So, yeah, I'm still um, in this it's one. It's quite yeah. good business for people, but just stay with us. Don't worry about it. Now, uh, our colleague Piers Morgan has been absolutely hitting all the headlines and hitting high notes all the way through uh, since this terrible uh, conflict began over in Gaza with Israel. Yeah. Um, last night, he had an incredible two-hour interview with, with somebody uh, who has broken all records. I watched that 20 guy. million watched pounds. It, yeah. Bassem uh, is the man's name, uh, an Egyptian guy. He got him out in Los Angeles. Tonight, though, uh, Piers Morgan interviewed uh, Priscilla Presley. Let's have a look. I've never met anyone like him and I don't think I ever will again. You only consummated your relationship on your wedding night. That's right. Did you feel Elvis was a controlling influence on you? Controlling. His death was something that shook the entire world. Devastating. My big fear was Lisa. She was only nine at the time. Lisa, of course, at one stage was married briefly to Michael Jackson. Were you concerned? Mm-hmm. Very. The Elvis movie was being fated at the Golden Globes. Within 48 hours, she incredibly sadly died. That hug was the last hug I gave. Tragic family. Really uh, big sad. piece in the uh, in the sun today. I miss his love, his words, his energy, the fun times. I'll be laid to rest beside him, just not right now. So that's uh, Priscilla Presley. In her own words, with Piers Morgan tonight on Piers Morgan Uncensored, 8pm. Um, let's move on to some other news stories uh, this morning. A terrible, terrible case up in Rochdale. Um, Rochdale been, again. With Rochdale again. again. We've been talking for years about grooming gangs and how uh, they've abused and exploited children for years and years and years. Uh, there was a case uh, which was dealt with finally yesterday. Um, five predators jailed for more than 70 years uh, in a crackdown on child abuse from more than two decades ago. Yeah, these are offences. They plied these girls. They're only aged 13 and 14 with alcohol, cannabis, ecstasy pills, yeah. 
uh, and sexually assaulted them between 2002 and 2006. And only now have they finally been convicted the best part of 20 years later, 17 years later. Turns out that what happened was in 2015, uh, one of the victims came forward and went to the police, so they reopened the investigation. And uh, these guys are members of the original gangs uh, who've been walking free for all those years. And what they're saying now is, well, how many more are yeah. out there? Uh, this, of course, was all due to the fact that the police uh, didn't like to go uh, hot and heavy on uh, Islam- Muslim Yeah, they were uh, frightened of being accused of they racism. They were frightened of being accused of racism. Yeah. And on the altar of that, uh, many young local white girls were terribly Mm. abused by these gangs and the police stood off because they were terrified of being accused of racism and so were the authorities generally and uh, Maggie Oliver, our friend. Maggie Oliver's done a brilliant job and of course she was whistleblower. very prominent in bringing this to everybody's notice. She resigned as a detective at Greater Manchester Police in 2012 uh, saying that the the, the force had failed all of the victims Um, and there was also a BBC drama that was made called Three Girls. Um, She's still calling for the police to continue to act because there's still cases going on which she says have not yet been exactly. stopped. Um, and of course, Suella Bravman's vowed to stamp out grooming guys. Nick Buckley, uh, who's also uh, somebody that we appears... Oh, there's, oh, by the way, there's here. the mug shots of the... Yeah, uh, that's, of those the are the perpetrators, yeah. uh, ghastly individuals. Nick Buckley, who's standing as independent uh, for election of Mayor of Manchester, says this, uh, it's good to see historic child abusers finally facing justice and going to jail, but I also want to see professional officers being held accountable uh, for their incompetence, cowardice and dereliction good of point. duty. So strong words from Nick Buckley and, and and I, and I salute you for that, Nick. Um, he also says there are plenty of existing grooming gang reports. We need to go through all of them and we need to prosecute people, including some of the police who failed the children. Yeah, and don't forget Maggie Oliver, the whistleblower who highlighted all this, has turned famously into a, a TV drama, a yeah. very harrowing TV drama a couple of years back. Right. Uh, when she, as a serving officer, highlighted this problem. Listen, you're... Kids are getting abused here and you're not doing anything about it. This is wrong. Uh, She was basically silenced. Her career was ruined and she was forced to leave the police. Uh, So that was what was going on up there back in the noughties. And we thought, we hoped that this was all over now. We'd started to arrest these people. But it seems to me uh, there are many more perpetrators of these awful crimes still walking free in the Rochdale area. So the police need to raise their game. Yes, good that they've done this, but this could only be the tip of the iceberg. Yeah, really. yeah, just to, more, to more, much more work to do here. I now, think. just when you thought the world of woke had gone completely yeah, insane is... in this country, over in America, um, it's even more crazy because they're now having a go at the names of certain birds. The American Ornithological Society has announced that it was going to change the names of various birds uh, after a what they call a highly charged and very publicised debate about slavery, racism and misogyny. <sighs> I mean, yeah. come off it, really? Yeah, and so there's a guy called, uh, for example, there's a bird there called, sure you all know it, it's called the Audubon's Shearwater. Right, bird. never heard of it. Uh, and it was named after John James Audubon, who in the 19th century uh, was a well-known bird illustrator and uh, a, uh, a, a naturalist as well, uh, and uh, did a lot of good uh, benevolent work, right. apparently. But, oh, here we go, drum roll. He was also 
a slave trader. Uh, and well, the Audubon Society, as I remember it, is a bit like the sort of wildlife trust in this country, isn't it? Yeah. It's kind of, it's all about protecting wildlife, it's all about protecting the environment, it does relatively good things. Um, and they're now going to say that it's named after a guy uh, who did bad things, therefore we have to change it. He also did a lot of good things, right. and this is ridiculous. I mean, if, if they've... This is all they, they've got to do with their time. Mm. I suggest they all get a life, because there are other birds. <laughs> More advice well. from Kev. Yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah. More, <laughs> keep it coming. Kev's agony <laughs> uncle session every morning. Uh, but see, get a life. Yeah. You know? I mean, get I've got another one for you. Here's one for you that yeah, you might on. have. You might have heard of the Scots Oriole, uh, one of the dozens of species they want to rename. Yeah. Uh, apparently, it's a black and yellow bird named after Winfield Scott, who was a Civil War general known for overseeing the forced relocation of indigenous peoples in 18. 1938, oh, which is now known as the Trail of Tears. Well, maybe they could call the bird the Trail of Tears. Trail of Tears, yeah. I mean, but these are all birds I don't think that you and I would even recognise. Another one called McCown's Longspur, um, <laughs> and there's all pictures of these characters. They've got great big handlebar moustaches. And was um, McCown's Longspur, another slave trader? Originally named after John P. McCown, a Confederate Army general, um, but it's already been renamed this one to Thick Build Longspur because... <laughs> His, his name change erased a painful link to slavery. Oh, racism. for God's Because, of course, the Confederates sake. in the Civil War generally were in favour of slavery yeah. because the Civil War was all about slavery yeah. at the yeah. end of the day. Yeah. And when the Yankees won, they kind of did away with it. But the yeah. point is, is that all of these uh, historic links are going to be historic links. Therefore, guess what? They're going to have historical names. And it it's, seems... ridic it's ridiculous. This is an extreme, egregious example of offence archaeology. Mm delving deep into history to find yeah. a reason to be offended by someone or something. Oh, look, 450 years ago, his great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather uh, invested in a company that used to trade in slaves. You know, it's like, for God's sake. I know. Do something better with your lives. Judith Skull, PhD, no less, who's the woman in charge of all of this, says, as scientists, we work to eliminate bias in science, but there has been historic bias in how birds are named and who might have a bird named in their honour. Exclusionary naming conventions developed in the 1800s clouded by racism and misogyny don't work for us today. Oh, for Do you think God. it's the case here? I mean, the, the humble sparrow, yeah. um, you know, maybe that the jackdaw, jack sparrow, the jack door, uh, you know, the pigeon. I don't know. Have they been named after the Well, they could have been. I think we need to investigate. I mean, let's find out what uh, birds here are named after people who did things wrong 5,000 years ago. Mm, absolutely you know? right. Well, let's do that, shall we? Because that wouldn't be a waste of time at all, would no, it? No, absolutely not. Just rename everything. Yeah. You know? yeah. <laughs> it's not offensive. Just rename everything. Yeah. Yeah. Um, meanwhile, OnlyFans uh, is in trouble. I love because this. There's a great story in the Sun today. There's an OnlyFans calendar uh, which has been put out there uh, by the makers uh, called the Calendar King. Yeah. Uh, lots of people have bought it. Thinking uh, they get lots of Thinking they're getting lots of what might be described as, yeah, sort of racy calendar for what did for they get? the inside of the what office. What did they get? OnlyFans. Like Unfortunately, for them, uh, it's a sort of cheeky gift. It's got a model on the front, so it looks as though literally inside, only fans. It looks as though you're going to get, um, uh, you know, sort of half naked women and half naked yeah, yeah, men, yeah. possibly. But instead, you actually get pictures of fans, yeah. uh, which well, are uh, the it's, things. It's, it's you, a calendar yeah. with only fans in it, so it's like 
bedroom fan. One of the things, for the example, in April, you will see um, uh, standing by a fireplace, uh, several fans in a row looking <laughs> next to each other. Uh, one man who received the £15 calendar as a gift said, I had at least hoped it would take the edge off the winter months, uh, but I'm afraid I'm not blown away. Um, so, yeah, so it's pictures of... Said one so, yes. disappointed customer, pictures allegedly. Very funny. Pictures of diff- just different fans yeah. in different <laughs> settings. <laughs> only, literally so, only Quite fans. a good joke, actually. We're not really in favour of pranks normally, but that's quite funny. Uh, but the other story that's everybody's getting very worked up about is the new Marks and Spencers uh, advert. Yeah, tell me I saw about it last night. Now, as you know, this is the season for Christmas well, we ads. Go, oh, it's and Christmas you were only ad. saying yesterday, yeah. weren't you, when are we going to see the John Lewis ad, you know? So we've got Marks and Spencers ad. First of all, it started getting a lot of flack because it's all about kind of doing whatever you want at Christmas. So you see people sort of setting fire to Christmas cards. You see people chucking the angel off the top of the Christmas tree. So it's been perceived as kind of very kind of anti-Christmas, right? That's strange. But in addition to that, um, there's also been uh, accusations made uh, that they've set fire to something that looks a bit like um, a, a Palestinian, Palestinian flag. But I of can course, see it there. You know, of course, the problem is um, <laughs> the paper hats were burned in a fireplace, but this was filmed in August. So there was nobody even thinking about Palestine and Israel when that was done. But guess what MS have done? They've apologised. No, they've apologised, and they've taken that bit out of the advert. Uh. I mean, you can't really make this stuff up. It's absolutely unbelievable. Yeah. So Christmas has come early, as usual, uh, but it's not Christmas, and, and you can't call it that. Don't forget, folks, as we enter the season of the TV Christmas ads, yes. uh, John Lewis, the eagerly awaited one, coming up soon. Don't forget to count how many times these adverts for the big stores mention Christmas. It'll be probably zero. Yes, we've already had the stories, haven't we, of the Christmas grottos being cancelled yeah. and Santa being told yeah. to sling his hook. We don't want you here. What sort of a divisive character are you? Get lost. Exactly. Marvelous, isn't it? Exactly. Merry uh, Christmas. Yeah. They don't anyway, like mentioning Christmas. Too early for Christmas. Not even December yet. I mean, come on. Let's I'm face not it. offended by Christmas, but I'm offended by Christmas coming so early. Yeah, I'm also offended by that. It's a shocking state of affairs. Welcome back. You're watching The Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. The conflict, of course, between Israel and Hamas rages on. We've seen this morning people moving across the Rafa crossing, uh, trying to get away from Gaza Strip uh, into Egypt. And we'll be bringing you more on that as it develops throughout the course of the day. But the front page of today's Sun newspaper highlights the reason Israel was forced to conduct this particular war. Uh, 32 innocent children currently being held hostage by the terrorist group Hamas are on the front page this morning. And more and more details keep emerging about the barbarity uh, of the terrorist organisation uh, in their attack on innocent Israeli civilians. But our state broadcaster still struggles to call them terrorists, which is pretty unbelievable. Uh, every time you hear the BBC now saying, uh, of course, Hamas is a prescribed terrorist organisation by organisation uh, by, some, some, by some governments, including ours, it really does seem to be ridiculous. Joining me now, though, to talk about this and some of today's other big stories is Ben Lazarus, Special Projects Editor uh, at The Spectator. Ben, welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Nice to see you. Um, a very striking front page uh, in the, on the front of the sun today. Bring them home. 32 innocent children snatched by terrorists. This is why Israel must fight the evil of Hamas. One of the children is only nine months old. And it's sort of beggar's belief, really. You can't imagine what these parents are going through, um, what their, their relatives, their, their, their siblings. I mean, you don't know what conditions they're being held. We, we've seen some very sort of raw footage coming out of, uh, of some of the, uh, the Hamas uh, accounts, but we don't really know even if any of these kids are still alive. Mm. Um, I think it's quite a powerful front page for the sun to run, yeah. um, particularly in light of the amount of people that seem to be taking posters down around London and other cities in the country mm. of, of, the, of the hostages. Yeah. 
Um, and I think this, this front page sort of speaks to the, the silent majority that actually are appalled mm. by the fact that Hamas have, have taken so many hostages. I think it's around 230 in total of which, um, a, you know, a large chunk of children. I, I should actually say I have a, a distant relative who is a hostage, um, Dietze Heimann. She's 84. She's a great grandmother. Right. Um, and, yeah, I mean, obviously the families are, are, are devastated. And well, it's dreadful, know. isn't it? I mean, because this is the thing. We're just seeing some footage from what these tunnels actually look like because what I'm told, um, uh, you may know this as well, is that the, the, the network of tunnels underneath Gaza um, is as big and as widespread, really, as the London Underground. Mm. And I so mean, you're not talking about a small area. No, not at all. I mean, it's, a, it's, it's around about 310 miles. Mm. Uh, a point that goes about 230 feet deep. Mm. Um, it's a whole network. Uh, but within that network, there doesn't seem to be any bomb shelters whatsoever for civilians. They've right. just built this entire, um, as you say, it's something like the, the London Underground, right. except it's, it's, it's t- to launch a war. It's not to right. protect their and own And this civilians. is one of the criticisms of Hamas and the way that they run uh, Gaza in the sense that, you know, yes, they've got lots of money, but they don't seem to spend it on their own people. You know, they spend it on arming themselves, they spend mm. it on building these tunnel networks, they spend it on uh, smuggling things in, which they can use to fire at Israel, basically. Yeah, and not least um, the leadership lining their own pockets. Mm. Um, I mean, the, the, the Hamas leaders living quite comfortably living in, in Qatar. Qatar. Yeah. You know, several of them are worth billions of pounds. Mm. Um, so there's something very, very uh, deeply ugly there. Uh, but what I think is, is particularly powerful about the sun front page and the, and the children is just how shocking a sort of war crime it is to, to snatch children. Yeah. But the thing, that, the thing that sort of bothers me most is when you're a child, time passes very, very slowly. Yeah. I mean, look, you and, I, you, you and I, when, you know, the seasons come and go, you right. blink, it's Christmas, you blink, right. it's the summer. When you're a child, time passes very slowly. Mm. So the idea of these poor children, some as young as nine months, yeah. being stuck... Um, underground. Just even away from their parents well, yeah. and familiarity because of most course. children are used to a kind of routine. You know, as a parent, you learn that the children like a routine. You can't suddenly give them breakfast at six o'clock one morning and then give it to them at nine o'clock the next morning. You know, they like to have it at the same time. They like to have dinner. Yes. They like to know their parents are there. They must be horrified at this. Yeah. And, um, you know, they're without daylight, stuck below ground. They'll be hearing bombs dropping around them. Um, it'd be all very unfamiliar. God knows what the conditions are like. And, and as I say, time must pass horribly, horribly must, slowly. Absolutely. And, and, you know, it beggars belief, you know, that we hear all the time now from the, the pro-Palestinian sort of lobby, if you like, that, you know, this, this didn't start on October the 7th. You know, this has been going for a long time. And yes, the conflict has been difficult. But I, I really don't see any equivalency between Hamas and the Israeli government, no matter what you might think about Benjamin Netanyahu, no matter whether you might think he's a bit too right-wing, and many um, Jewish people do and many Israelis do, there is no equivalence between taking hostages like this. I mean, Israel has never done anything like this. Mm. Um, look, you know, there's, there's lots of reasons to dislike Benjamin Netanyahu. There's lots of reasons to dislike various things the Israeli government have done, mm. whether that's settlement expansion in the West Bank or, or anything else. But fundamentally, it is a democracy. And, yeah, I mean, the Israelis wouldn't dream of doing something yeah. like this. I mean, and this and as far as the kind of the, the surrounding neighbourhood countries are concerned, I mean, we're watching today um, the border between um, Egypt and, and, and Gaza, the Rafa crossing, uh, which Egypt are ke- keeping steadfastly still. They're hoping uh, some British uh, citizens to get across it today and get into Egypt. But is it surprising uh, to you that basically Egypt, uh, particularly, and Jordan have said very categorically, we don't want to take any Palestinian refugees? Well, in many ways, it's not surprising at all. Mm. Um, Egypt has its own issues with the Muslim Brotherhood. They'd be very wary about taking in 
uh, refugees that might be of sort of Islamist persuasion. Yeah. Um, G- uh, J- Jordan has got terribly burnt before when they've, they've taken in Palestinians in the, in the 80s after Black September. So the Palestinians in many ways are sort of the perfect pawn for the, for the Arab yeah. world. They're not actually interested in, in, in seeing them uh, succeed or, or giving them right. shelter or refuge. They, right. they, they really just like to keep them there as a political point. And they kind of hide behind this idea that if we were to take them, it would somehow legitimise the fact that they've been moved out of their homeland. So that's a kind of a double-edged sword for them, really, isn't it? Yes. Um, it'd be much easier for them to, to keep them in Gaza, keep yeah. them as the political pawns in, right. in, in the sort of larger Arab world's war against Israel. Um, and they've got no interest in taking them as refugees. No, indeed. And one of the things that I said this morning, which I thought was interesting as well, was that yesterday's Sun Front page was all about the police uh, taking down these posters, because you, you referenced it earlier that some people have been taking them down, and many of those taking down the posters of, of these uh, children, child hostages were doing so while saying it's all lies, you know, these are not children that have been taken hostage, it's all Zionist lies, it's all made up, none of it's true. And I wonder whether the Sun have done this as well, just to make the point to the police that, you know, what are you going to do now? Are you going to go around to news agents and take copies of the Sun out and say you can't put that on the front page? Because the police have made a big blunder here, haven't they? Yeah, I mean, the police, uh, essentially, they're frightened of the mob, right? Yeah. I mean, they, they, they really gonna, are. They, they're going to sort of kowtow to whoever they think in the community is going to cause them the most mm. amount of grief. Um, and therefore, I mean, there was one clip of the police actually taking the posters down themselves because they were worried about yeah. community. Well, they've done it in um, Manchester and in London. In Manchester, the, the police, the chief constable has actually said it was wrong and it was a mistake and it shouldn't have happened. In London, they haven't said that. No, and, uh, and fundamentally it did happen. I mean, you can't, you can't get around right. that, right? Like, um, so I think there's, there's questions to be asked of the police and, and, you know, really I think the Sun should be applauded for, for taking yes. a stand and, and making a, a real point and putting it on the front have page. Have you been surprised by not just in London, but, but in other parts of the country as well, and also around the world, the, 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 the sort of reaction to what's going on ever since October the 7th and the absolute horror of what happened that morning, which we all woke up to and couldn't quite believe. But the way that the narrative has kind of been shifted, I've read a lot of pieces where people have said or asked the question, you know, are Hamas winning the propaganda war? And sometimes when you see the numbers of people walking on the streets of London during these protests, and there's another big one coming on Saturday, mm. they're calling for a million people to join it. I don't know whether that, that will happen. Um, but I've been quite shocked by, by the kind of outpouring of support um, for not just pro-Palestine movements, but, but also for Hamas. It's rather depressing, but I yeah. can't say I'm surprised at all. Um, it was sort of, even on the, the, the very Saturday it happened on October the 7th, it was almost like within hours of, of the atrocities coming out of Israel, the news stories quite quickly started shifting towards mm. the Israeli response. Yeah. Um, the BBC was very quick to talk about the, retali- the, the sort of retaliation and the, yeah. the worries about is- Israeli right. strikes. Um, of course, The Guardian was, was another paper that did such coverage. So in many ways, uh, it wasn't a surprise. It was obvious the Israelis were going to react. Um, Hamas wanted them to react. Mm. Fundamentally, uh, however unpleasant a notion it is, the more dead Palestinians, the better the PR win for Hamas. Um, supposedly, October the 7th was, was... The plans for that were in the making for, for several years. Right. Uh, as I, say, I said earlier, there was no, there's no ton, uh, bomb shelters within those tunnel systems. Mm. Hamas want their people essentially to be slaughtered, to win the PR war against Israel. And uh, they have a very willing audience, not only in the Arab world, but also in the West, as you say. Yeah, and also the United Nations, you know, because we see all these things coming out of the UN, various 
pronunciations and various votes. And there was a vote there uh, not long ago um, mm. to try and sort of outlaw Hamas and to condemn what had happened. And it didn't get enough votes to succeed. And you think to yourself, sorry, what is the United Nations for? What's it all about? Yeah, well, I mean, like, you know, I think it was Iran yesterday got appointed onto the uh, human rights, uh, you know, panel of yeah. the UN. Um, the UN has become a bit of a, uh, of a joke body, I mean, it's been a joke body, in my, in my view, for a long time. But, I mean, I just now I don't even see the point of its existence. Mm. You know, it really does seem ridiculous. And also, what about the, um, uh, the way that people are perceiving London now? around the world, because it's almost the epicentre of the biggest sort of um, protests that, that, that are happening. We've seen some terrible things being chanted uh, in Sydney. Uh, we've seen lots of uh, demonstrations in America, in New York in particular, uh, and other places. But, you know, we had just the other night a group of, of women, I think it was, who weren't particularly pro-Palestine, sitting down at Liverpool Street Station, stopping people from getting on trains and generally protesting on behalf of Palestine. But it was like a women's refuge charity. Yes, but this is where this sort of strange um, sort of intersectionality identity yeah. politics comes in, where it's almost like every, every battle has to be mm. somehow interlinked. So yeah. somehow you have, as you say, a, a women's refuge charity, you know, which should be campaigning. It has to be pro-Palestine. Yes. And, um, and again, it's the same when you see groups that sort of like, you know, um, uh, I think they call themselves Queers for Palestine. Um, uh, that's the name of the organisation. Right. I wasn't just using that term. Uh, and they, they see this almost like this joined up battle. Mm. And Israel in many ways has come to represent uh, certain things in the West that, that people don't like, whether yes. that's capitalism, whether that's uh, Western values, yes. whatever that's that might be. That's the street protest there you can see. And there seems to be no rhyme or reason to it. You know, you've also got, uh, I was reading a piece overnight uh, from uh, somebody who works at The Guardian saying they're now looking for another job because they feel actually so uncomfortable about the way that not only the, the story is being covered in the newspaper and in the Observer, but also in the kinds of conversations that are being had inside the Guardian offices, where people are sort of laughing at scenes of an Israeli flag being burned or, you know, uh, sort of poking fun at, uh, at anything that's negative about Israel. And there mm. seems to be this kind of left-wing narrative now. Um, even we saw Just Stop Oil trying to stop, um, you know, some migrants being taken to the Bibi Stockholm. We've seen, you know, um, Greta Thunberg uh, supporting a free Palestine, um, and you just think, you know, well, I thought you were all about climate change, but now you're about free Palestine as well. As, as I say, it's this sort of weird uh, intersectionality where uh, Palestine has to fit perfectly within all these other campaigns and causes that are, are essentially popular among the, the sort of liberal bloc mm. today in the West. Yeah. Um, I mean, the Guardian story was, was, was quite a shocking read yesterday. It was. Um, I mean, what's interesting is if, if you were to make the comparison, say, with George Floyd, yeah. and when that you know, terrible incident happened. The amount of sort of sympathy uh, for communities here, worldwide, around the West, um, the idea, say, that The Guardian would treat a black member of staff like that mm. is unthinkable. Right. And yet somehow, uh, for a Jewish or Israeli member of staff, I mean, the person's anonymous who wrote the piece, uh, if what they write is true, I mean, it seems, seems pretty shocking. I mean, I must admit, reading through those accounts of what was going on inside the office, it doesn't particularly surprise me. Um, but I imagine that might be the way it's going in a lot of offices because, you know, if you're now a Londoner uh, and a sort of trendy um, 
champagne socialist type. You're supposed to have all these beliefs. You're not supposed to be in any way right-wing because you don't get invited out to the pub because people shun you because you must be some kind of horrible, ghastly individual um, who's guilty of all sorts of hate crimes. When you see Keir Starmer today, we highlighted it a bit earlier, um, after he got to the point where he was admitting that it was not time for a ceasefire, he got called a war criminal when he came out of the Chatham House speech that he made. Um, But yesterday, he also issued a... um, uh, a statement on Twitter about Islamophobia, um, almost as if he was trying to balance it up, because obviously some parts of his of his organisation, his party, very unhappy. They want the ceasefire. They want mm. him to actually say that there should be a ceasefire. But he's made this um, statement about Islamophobia, and suddenly his poppy has disappeared from his uh, from his um, uh, jacket. And there are two pictures, one of which he's wearing it, and one of which he's not. And you have to say, well, that must have been deliberate. I don't think it's just fallen off. You've taken a view that you won't wear a poppy because it might offend the Muslim community that you're addressing? I mean, very possibly. Um, I mean, Starmer's walking a bit of a tightrope at the moment. I mean, fundamentally, he he does want to back a call for a ceasefire. A lot of people, including senior ministers in his cabinet, do want a ceasefire. And uh, Labour has a large, um, you know, block of of, of Muslim voters. Mm. So he's he's sort of walking a bit of a tightrope and and trying to keep everyone happy. I I think he was surprisingly statesman- like, I was, with, I was quite speech. impressed with his, the, the beginning part of his speech. Mm. He kind of screwed it up at the end when he started talking about how uh, great the multiculturalism was in this country, because at the moment it doesn't feel like that. No, it, it perhaps doesn't. But, um, I mean, fundamentally, this, it, Labour tearing their hair out and, and sort of beginning a civil war within their own party over a conflict many miles away, uh, over which, you know, the Israelis are not paying any attention no. to what the opposition party in England are doing whatsoever. Um, but the people who, who are calling for a ceasefire should, should come out and be honest. I yeah. mean, ha- you know, what they're really saying is, Israel, put down your weapons mm. and Hamas, carry on with your attacks. Yes. I mean, rockets are and, still and flying. And while these 32 innocent day. children are being held uh, underground, under the streets of, of, of Gaza, which seems incredible to me. I can't imagine why anyone with any sort of a, a ounce of humanity could call for, for that to happen without the hostages being released. Mm. As I, it's sort of it's one thing to call for a humanitarian, you know, uh, corridor to be set up, yeah. and maybe a pause in in uh, exchange of fire for for a, a period to allow aid in, etc. And I think Joe Biden has, has has sort of called for that uh, recently. But it's another thing to call for a ceasefire because that would suggest a country can just allow 230 hostages to be snatched, including the best part of 40 mm. children, um, allow their civilians to get. Uh, slaughtered, essentially, mm. raped, beheaded in, in some cases. I mean, what country on earth would, would allow that to happen mm. and not respond? No, absolutely right. Um, let's just move things back to, to more domestic matters. We've watched uh, with some interest, I suppose, uh, we have anyway here, I don't know about you, Dominic Cummings at the COVID inquiry. Um, he's still going. I mean, last night I was watching his Twitter account and he was still uh, uttering oaths and using the C word to describe various members of the cabinet, particularly Matt Hancock. Matt Hancock, we now learn, thought of himself as some kind of batsman at the crease, batting away problems while he was running the uh, the, the Department for Health. Um, it just seems an extraordinary way to have run a government, doesn't it? Yes. I mean, the, the Matt Hancock stuff just highlights once again just how unsuitable this man was for high office. Yeah. Um, I think in Helen McNamara's uh, evidence yesterday, she said that in the run-up to March 2020, when COVID was starting to become a thing around the world and in China and Italy, Hancock was saying, um, this is all covered, we, mm. there's a plan in place. Mm. I can't remember the exact quote, but yeah. along those lines. Right. And it transpired there was no plan in place 
whatsoever, yeah. and he was just winging it. And so this idea is very Alan Partridge-like that he was sort of being asked questions and and, yes. and, and saying he was batting it away. Right. I mean, it, well, everybody remembers, don't they, that moment on, on Good Morning Britain when he burst into tears. And every, I mean, I, I don't know anyone that looked at that and thought that was genuine or, or that it wasn't just extremely weird. He was just kind of going, well, it's all for, I mean, we all are perhaps a bit emotional at the moment because everybody's got sort of heightened senses because of what's been going on. But it was a very odd moment for me for a senior politician to reveal himself to be sort of on the edge almost. Yeah, strange. He's a strange guy, I think. Yeah. And, and an utterly mediocre one mm. and one who should never have been in charge. Uh, of such an important department at the time of a pandemic. Mm, absolutely right. And so, I mean, Rishi Sunak, meanwhile, um, just finally, is still uh, up to his eyeballs in artificial intelligence, thinks he's going to meet Elon Musk and change the world. What have you got, what have you got to say about that? I think, to some extent, Sunak should probably be applauded for getting the summit happening. Mm. You know, the, the fact that he's managed to get, I think it's about 26 or 28 countries yeah. around the world, including China, to sort of sit down and actually discuss the threats of AI. Mm. It's very easy sometimes to dismiss AI because it all feels quite sci-fi. Yeah. You know, the idea that somehow the computers are going to take over. We, you know, one immediately thinks of how from uh, Space Odyssey yeah. um, and, and, and such sort of stories like that. But the tech companies are racing towards making super intelligence AI. Mm. And there are inherent dangers that come with that. And it's a very unregulated unre industry the tech companies have an incentive to speed everything up because essentially there's major money in Silicon Valley for this. Yeah. They're competing with each other. So the, the first company that achieves super intelligence AI wins and will make a lot of cash. So there's no sort of third party oversight of this stuff. Right. And I think Sunak saying, actually, hold on, we do need some third party oversight because there are some dangers with AI. You know, we, you know there was, it was about two years ago, there was an AI that, that over, it sort of instantly managed to make sort of chemical biochemical mm. weapons and that kind of thing. Mm. I mean, these machines that we're creating, we don't really understand, and they're growing and, and almost evolving in ways that we can't predict. And there should be some oversight into what is actually going on in these laboratories. So I think, I think, I think Sunak's done quite a good thing getting a summit going, getting people together. Probably easy to sort of think of, of 2001 Space Odyssey and it's all a bit sci-fi, but something probably does need to change in yeah. that industry. And a lot of industry figures I mean, I once interviewed Jeff Hinton, who's considered the, one of the godfathers of AI. And this is a guy who spent his whole life working in this industry. And suddenly he's saying, I'm frightened of what we're creating. The, the genie's out of the bottle. Mm. So I think Sunak's probably played quite a good hand in, in getting countries together, particularly, you know, the fact that China's going to be involved, um, to see what they can do to sort of put some brakes put on this development. On we'll see how that goes. Ben, good to talk to you. Thank you very much, Steve. Ben Lazarus and Spectator there. Welcome back. You're watching the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. And now it is time for Taking the Mic. Now, it might surprise you to know that we've talked about the NHS many times on this show. And the NHS is in a particularly parlous state at the moment, as we know, uh, every time we talk about waiting lists increasing, every time we talk to anybody uh, out there, including yourselves, uh, that you've been put on a waiting list and then it's, an operation's been cancelled, an operation's been put off for another a couple of days or a couple of months. Well, we've now got uh, the actual Welsh Secretary, David Davis, a man uh, who I know quite well, who's been railing against the Welsh Health Service because the National Health Service in Wales is actually in worse state 
state than the National Health Service in England. One in five people in Wales is on an NHS waiting list. His own father had to wait 27 hours to be seen uh, by a doctor after falling at his home. He's 72 years of age. Uh, he was told that uh, when he rang uh, 999 or 111, or whatever it is you're supposed to call now, uh, that he would be assessed within the next two hours. It took four hours for somebody to get back to him. Uh, he then finally got an ambulance uh, after about 10 hours and then finally got the ambulance to take him to a hospital where he sat outside the hospital in the ambulance for several more hours. 27 hours later, he finally saw a doctor. Uh, and David Davis has said it is nothing short of shambolic. And Mark Drakeford, who runs Wales, of course, because he's the Labour leader, uh, is a good example of how the NHS would be under Labour, i.e. not much better than the Tories and possibly worse. The problem here is that the NHS is not fit for purpose. You've heard me say it before. You'll hear me say it again. And until such time as somebody gets inside the organisation and gets to grips with it and stops blaming a lack of funding and stops blaming the Tories, we might finally get somewhere. I'm going to ask you to tell us your stories today about the NHS because you know you've got them. 0344 499 1000. Tell us what is going on out there. Tell us how bad it is and we will pass it on to the powers that be. That is Taking the Mic. And so one in eight freed prisoners have been released early in the past two weeks as the Ministry of Justice has accelerated its efforts to ease the jail overcrowding crisis. More than 250 prisoners have been freed 18 days before their scheduled release date, with some 1,000 prisoners released on average every week. Now, not many of us know much about the prison system in this country, and not many of us know what it's like inside, never mind what happens when you get released. So here to discuss this and much, much more with me is the Head of Crime and Justice at the Policy Exchange, David Spencer. David, a very good morning to you. Good morning, Mike. Good to see you. Yeah, good to see you too. I mean, it's an interesting way to deal with the prison overcrowding system, isn't it? To just let people out early. I mean, call me old fashioned, but surely the whole point of going to prison is that you serve the time that you were sentenced to serve. And if you haven't got enough space in prisons, you should build some more, shouldn't you? Well, that's right. And that's a really big part of the problem is that the government had planned to bring 20,000 new prison places online through the prison building programme by the mid 2020s. And certainly what we're seeing at the moment is that programme's well behind. I think the other big problem with uh, or the big challenge, certainly um, with people being released uh, into the community early is where the probation service is at the moment. The probation service has been through 10 years of uh, reform, reversal of the reforms, trying to rebuild it. The probation service is in real challenges at the moment. So releasing people from prison into the, the care of the probation service is, is something that we need to keep an eye on very closely. And what is it about the probation service um, that is that is lacking, if you like? I mean, they, will they complain that they haven't got enough people as well, that they can't keep tabs on all the people they're supposed to keep tabs on? How does that all work now? Well, if we look at the probation service over the last 10 years, they've been through, they went through a massive reform programme, um, which it quite clearly became pretty quickly uh, was not working. Um, they then had to reverse that. So they outsourced everything. Then they insourced it again. They had to reverse the whole programme. And they've basically been going through a process of rebuilding the probation service over the last couple of years. So they, it's been through a pretty traumatic uh, experience as an organisation over the last couple of years. One of the things that the government said they're going to do is double the number of people on electronic tags. Um, the reality is, if we're going to see a lot more people released from prison, even doubling the number of people on tags isn't going to be enough. And so we're going to need to see that number massively increase. 
Yeah. And I mean, how do they categorise prisoners that they decide to release? Because presumably you'd like to think that some of the more dangerous prisoners don't get released early. But of course, what we've discovered over time uh, with regards to people like Colin Pitchfork was that he was released into an open prison long before there was even any conversations about whether he should actually be allowed out. And it turns out that he was walking around uh, in towns and in, and, in, and in various different locations with members of the public long before we even knew about it. Yeah, I mean, they go through a fairly significant risk assessment process. Um, the challenge is that as uh, as there is a significant increase in the number of people being released, um, the probation officers and other people in the criminal justice system need to do more of those risk assessments. And obviously, the more that you have to do, uh, you know, the more likelihood there is of things being missed. Um, so, you know, this is a pretty the criminal justice system as a whole is in a pretty parlous state. Um, and certainly while some of the steps the government is taking are absolutely necessary, particularly around things like uh, foreign national offenders and deporting them and getting getting them out of our prisons, you know, uh, the challenge is is pretty significant. Yeah, I think so. Um, and so what would you do if you were to try and improve on the system after the release of these prisoners? Because, I mean, obviously what we'd like to know uh, is how many of these prisoners come out of prison and then never go back in. My fear is that the recidivism rates are actually pretty high and that somebody who has been in prison once is more likely to return there than somebody who's never been. Yes, there's a lot of data on this and certainly people who have committed uh, crimes that have been sentenced to short sentences, so that's a sentence of less than a year. When they come out of prison, about 50, 55 percent of them reoffend within a year. People that have done community sentences, um, so therefore they've been convicted of a crime and they have to do unpaid work or they get tagged in the community, they are on a curfew, those sorts of things. Um, their recidivism rate is about 30 percent within a year. Um, so you're talking about different prison different types of prisoner, um, but the recidivism rates are pretty high, you're right. That's the problem, isn't it? Let's talk about some of the other things going on around the justice system. I mean, there's a bizarre story today um, about a senior police officer who was the head of the drug squad um, who failed to take uh, a drug test and kept refusing to take a drug test. It took three years to get him out of the job. It cost one and a half million quid. His name's Julian Bennett. Um, he's eventually now been sacked. Um, uh, he was accused, apparently, of, uh, of smoking joints, taking um, uh, ecstasy, taking LSD, all sorts of other things uh, before he went into work. He denies it. He's been cleared of all of that. But why does it take the police this length of time to get rid of somebody? And why was he getting paid 400,000 quid in the three years it took to nobble him? Well, do you know what my my honest reaction is? I, I can't give you an explanation. It's absolutely <laughs> incomprehensible uh, you know it's taken three and a half years the whole thing has cost about one and a half million pounds it's absolutely incredible the only positive things i can say i can say two positive things about this well probably three. First of all the guy clearly committed gross misconduct and has been sacked by the police that's the right thing to have happened the second thing is very clearly the relatively new management inside the met the assistant commissioner for standards and professionalism, a woman called Barbara Gray, she gave a statement about this. She was clearly pretty disgusted by this officer's conduct. Um, so that's the second thing. The third thing is there is or there has been recently a review of the way police misconduct and dismissals cases are handled. Um, and I think we will see a change going forward so that we don't have this sort of ludicrous situation being replicated again. Yeah, absolutely right. And meanwhile, back on the streets of our cities, we've seen some very odd behaviour by the police. We've seen uh, not only the police dealing with protesters uh, in a very, what I would call, soft 
softly, softly manner, you know, asking people to get off statues, you know, saying, please don't do that. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Again, or else something bad will happen without saying what the bad thing will be. We then see uh, both in Manchester and London police taking um, posters down that have been put there by um, campaigners for the freeing of children's children who are being held hostage by Hamas. And the police are actually taking the posters down. Seems an incredible state of affairs that we find ourselves in. You're right. And I can see that you're showing the footage from Liverpool Street the other night during rush hour um, when there was a pretty significant uh, protest. Yes. Um, it's, it's impossible for me to believe that there wasn't significant disruption to commuters being able to get home after a day's work with all of these people. They just seem to have been allowed to get on with it. It's it's it is absolutely incredible. And the fact that that particular protest was done at Liverpool Street, which is where the Kinder Transport Memorial is, yeah. um, seems to me just particularly grotesque. Yeah, exactly right. And it does seem, and I don't think we're being unkind to say this, that the police, certainly in London, are, if anything, pro-people who are um, on the side of Palestine and anti-people who are not, because they also arrested a man uh, this week in London, in East London, um, because of something that he said about Palestinians and about somebody uh, who was found to be complaining about the number of Palestinian flags in his neighbourhood of East London, uh, Bethnal Green. I'm not familiar with that exact case, Mike. I, I, I wouldn't go as far as you have there in saying that the police are uh, pro-Palestinian or um, anti-Jewish sort of people. I, you know, I, I, I don't think that's right. Um, I think that what we're seeing is the police dealing with I think we would all acknowledge a very difficult situation. Um, it is, you know, it is not easy, for example, in a crowd of 100,000 people to go and arrest one, you know, 10, 20 people. The problem is that the current tactics are leading to this pretty perverse outcome where it appears to a lot of people, like you say, that there is something around a sort of differential policing going on. And certainly the work that Policy Exchange has been doing around protest actually for many years, has looked at this sort of issue. And, uh, and I can certainly see why people are very, very concerned about it. 
Now, uh, we're going to talk about the COVID inquiry. So much uh, of the media coverage is focused on the melodrama of the rude language, which was pretty rude, you'd have to say. Uh, all politicians like the then Secretary of Health, Matt Hancock, showing nuclear levels of overconfidence. I can't tell you what Dominic Cummings referred to him as. But is this COVID inquiry just a media circus? Or will lessons actually be learned to prevent the next pandemic or to at least behave in a bit more of a responsible manner. More importantly, why on earth is our only inquiry going to be uh, finishing in 2026? While Sweden managed to get theirs opened and closed last year. Absolutely extraordinary. This morning, the papers and the headlines are telling us that COVID rules were broken pretty much every day in number 10. Um, and the atmosphere that's being described by uh, various people who are uh, coming in as witnesses is nothing short of incredible. But is it really any surprise? Joining me to talk about this and some of today's other big stories is Ella Whelan, Assistant Editor of Spikes Online. Ella, very good uh, morning to you. Welcome back. Um, I must say, I do find it quite entertaining, some of the stuff that's been coming out. Um, Dominic Cummings' foul-mouthery and, and some of his continued foul-mouthery on Twitter last night was, was bringing a smile to my lips. But, I mean, it's a very serious issue, this. Um, and without wishing to sound too po-faced, um, it's, it's incredible to me that this place was being run by uh, people who didn't seem to care how they behaved, uh, we, either to each other or amongst themselves, uh, but who were consistently telling us exactly what to do. I think that's most people's experience, which is, you know, OK, Dominic Cummings has got foul language. You know, stop the press. We all knew that about him. Mm. Uh, we probably all guessed that, you know, we've watched enough um, spin-off and sort of mock documentaries about politics and about parliament to know that the kind of behavior that goes on in there is pretty you know comes sails pretty close to the wind the problem isn't that isn't them sort of shouting at each other swearing at each other saying nasty things about each other the problem is that there was a double standards which is that they thought it was fine um to for them to decide what was the right level of risk for themselves that they were able to you know they trusted themselves to make decisions but the public, the populace weren't. And so there was a real, you know, uh, us and them attitude to COVID. And I think mm. that's what sticks in people's craw. But this really is, maybe you won't know this film, Mike, but as maybe some of uh, your female viewers and listeners will. Um, it's starting to feel like Mean Girls, that film where there's this section in it where uh, the burn book gets released, which is basically like a sort of snarky, unpleasant, uh, a hard copy of an equivalent of a WhatsApp group gets released. And it's just... You know, it's just childish. It's yeah. just pathetic. It's cringeworthy. But it doesn't uh, it doesn't answer any of the important questions about what happened throughout that pandemic period. And actually, I think the most depressing thing in all of this is that the MO of this inquiry seems to be pushing at asking the question or its total focus is on. Should we have locked down harder? Should we have done mm. it quicker? Were we too lenient? And actually, that's not the question a lot of people are asking. No. A lot of people want to ask the question of, should we have shut schools? Right. Should we have, you know, imprisoned, uh, you know, arrested people for going on walks in the park? That seems to be lacking in all of this. Yeah, no, I totally agree with you. I'm, I'm like you. Um, I agree that, that the wrong questions are being asked. 
I agreed was, as well that the wrong questions were being asked at the time. You know, when you'd switch on your television at five o'clock for the daily press conference with all the usual suspects, and it was always the same people who got to ask the questions, and it was always in the same order, uh, and it was always about whether the lockdown was, was hard enough, whether they shouldn't have done more, whether they shouldn't have done it sooner, whether they shouldn't have done it for longer, and this sort of narrative that everybody in mainstream media companies seemed to, to buy, I'm glad to say that we didn't at Talk Radio, uh, was that this was all absolutely necessary to stop everybody from dying you know and you remember very clearly at the beginning of it um we were being told all sorts of horrible things would happen if we didn't actually just stay inside the house and clearly that was wrong advice clearly when we look around at places like florida and sweden you know where their outcomes were, were no worse if not actually better um an awful lot of what was being said by those inside downing street at the beginning which maybe we shouldn't be doing this was all forgotten somehow yeah, isn't it ironic, or I don't know if that's the right word, but that a lot of those people in those press conferences, a lot of the media were themselves playing a bit fast and loose with yes. the rules, as we later found out. So there was, you know, there's a kind of cynicism to all of this, which I just really don't think is healthy for public life. But it's also the case that, look, I think, I think, you know, there are extremists on both sides, pro-lockdown, anti-lockdown. I think most people's experience was when this first hit the headlines, we were, you know, panicked and frightened. And you thought, well, you know, you sort of made a rough assessment of saying if this is going to be a killer virus, I don't want grannies and granddads to die. So I'm going to follow the rules. And, you know, you thought, OK, I will. I went and <laughs> did deliveries of meals to vulnerable people, which I stopped doing when they made them vegan. because I thought that was far more cruel than it was you know, <laughs> living people isolated people horrible vegan slot but you know everybody saw there, there was actually a positive sense of of we're all in this together we've got to just get through this and and we'll eradicate the you know we'll get over it but as the lockdown started to become multiple as you know people started to realize that schools were closed kids weren't in being you know spreaders and all these horrible things they were called and yet old people were still dying in care homes mm. it, it it just didn't make sense and you realise that actually what was happening, in my opinion anyway, was the government kind of trying to uh, <laughs> sort of deflect blame and deflect responsibility by just shutting down public life rather than actually taking some hard decisions and giving yeah. some leadership. Uh, and none of that feels like it's going to come out in the inquiry. No. And I think your point about Mean Girls is a good one, because I've always seen um, Parliament and politics in general to be full of these kind of people, you know, petty, small-minded, bitchy, mm. um, always trying to uh, sort of stab each other in the back, try and get one over on one another. You know, somebody once described the House of Commons as like what school would be like if you didn't have any bullies. And I wonder, and I know that doesn't sound quite like the best things to have, but, but you know, I'm not suggesting we should have bullies. But actually, they've got the bullies because they've got the whip's office uh, where they kind of, you know, quite happy to bully people into behaving in a particular way or not saying anything that they shouldn't say. But it comes as no surprise to me. But it also, does it not give shine a light then on why they're so out of touch on everything else? Why they can also walk into a, a building every day, talk amongst themselves, plan policy in all sorts of areas, like whether it's net zero, uh, whether it's transport policy, whether it's HS2, whether it's immigration policy. And they haven't got a clue what, as you say, ordinary people think or care about. Well, I think it's not it's that they haven't got a clue. But I also think it's that they they aren't interested in finding out what your average voter yeah. um, cares about. I mean, the most heinous aspect of the lockdown period was the attack on democracy. You know, you had a government that had just sailed into a big election victory, um, riding on the back of the D word, you know, saying we're going to take Brexit seriously. We're the kind of the people's parliament. Right. You know, Boris Johnson giving it, uh, you know, 
you know, convinced, quite convincingly and convinced a lot of Labour voters to say this is going to be a you know government that takes people's issues seriously and then just absolutely eradicated any public engagement mm. whatsoever um, throughout that period. Um, not even a pretense of, of sort of trying to take the temperature of the, that's a terrible phrase he used throughout the COVID period, but, you know, try to try to get a I sense of apt, how actually. people felt about this. No, I think I think it's and, very apt. Because and, don't forget, there was a time when people were having their temperatures taken. That was one of the things they did. Not so much here, but I know they did it in other parts of the world, where they would let you into a well, building after taking your temperature. I don't know about you, but I get a little bit of sort of, uh, you know, shiver runs through me yeah. when you're walking around, going to the shops, because some of the shops still have the, you know, the signs are still yeah. around, and mm-hmm. there are still around Dalston where I live there are still sort of faded markings on the street of sort of social distance and there is you know Covid did leave quite a lot of scars on us I mean you know part of the public gallery throughout this inquiry is filled with people whose you know family members died and want answers for that that's one side of it there's also you know a generation of of parents who are dealing with kids who won't ever catch up educationally from being kept out of school and who maybe have some quite serious social problems from oh, being sure. isolated. No, no question. Well, I mean, I know you're... Uh, all of this stuff needs to be tackled. But I think, Mike, I, I'm not interested. I don't think anyone's interested anymore really in a blame game because that ship has sailed. Mm. The thing that I care about is if this happens next month, and actually, there's whispers about COVID. I, I, I'm under the weather at the moment. Who knows if I've got COVID or not? But there's like, there's always this whisper as to whether or not COVID will return and whether or not we should lock down again. And my my priority is to make sure that we don't repeat the mistakes of shutting down public life. I don't care who is to blame. I don't care if you're Team Cummings, Team Johnson, Team Sunak. Just make sure this doesn't happen again. Yeah. And, well, and I'm worried that it will happen up again. Up until, you know, 2020, we used to have flu epidemics every single year, which killed tens of thousands of people every single year. But never did we uh, act like we did during the COVID campaigns because it was seen to be something that was, un, you know, I, I knew younger people who got flu and died, but mostly it was a, a disease that, that tended to catch older people. You could get a jab if you wanted one. There was no mass kind of direction that you must go and get your flu jab. We, we'd hear the odd advert, but you wouldn't suddenly go, oh, no, I'm actually, I'm, I don't fancy it. I'm all right, thanks. You know, you were treated like some kind of pariah if you didn't want to get vaccinated. And I've always been on the side of libertarianism here that, that you know, I never told anybody to get it. I never told anybody not to get it. If you wanted to do it, you went and did it. But, you know, you're right. There are people who are in health care, particularly in this country and in government, uh, who really liked telling everyone what to do and watching them do it. I think that's the difference between, you know, uh, the, the whole sort of mantra of following the science and also following reason. But there's a difference between those two, which is that, you know, we I got jabbed. I worked as a jabber um, in, you know, voluntary um, going to clinics to um, inoculate people with the COVID vaccine. I was very proud to do that. I think a healthy bit of sort of public encouragement was was a good thing. Mm. But it didn't it wasn't positive. It wasn't it, it didn't have that kind of positive social aspect to it it was the way in which we were messaged at about uh, either the vaccine or social distancing or anything like that was extremely negative it was all about how awful people were how you know how kind of misanthropic and terrible we were that mm. if we didn't follow the rules we were re- we were these really really horrible people and it totally missed the point that actually if we're all being honest whisper it most of us broke the rules at some point you know whether it was to go see our you know, our lonely mum, whether it was to go check on 
our brother who we hadn't heard on in a few days, whether it was to go for, you know, whatever. Most people did that. They made an assessment and they quietly sort of, you know, went back to a little bit to normal life. I think that's the, that's the shred of hope yeah. we've got in all of this, which is that actually most of us weren't sort of acting like sheeple. I hate that word. We weren't sort of hoodwinked. We weren't just sucking up what the government gave us. There was a little bit of sort of positive rebellion. And I think we should try and build on that and turn it into something, you know, meaningful about the importance of a public square, the importance of solidarity, the importance of social life, because, you know, these challenges are going to hit us again. Right. You know, this is this, a situation like that, like this isn't unique. No, but disappointingly as well, one of the things that didn't happen was that there wasn't really much opposition to what the government was doing. The only time you ever heard from mm. Keir Starmer was when he said, oh, no, you mustn't open the schools because he was under the impression from the unions that they shouldn't do that because that would be unsafe. So he was kind of contributing in a way uh, to a lack of opposition, to a lack of serious independence thought or even to question what was being said well it's quite remarkable that you had such consensus across the political um spectrum that doesn't it's probably not you can't even call it a spectrum anymore they were all the same the only difference was that labor party was you know its line of attack on the conservatives was you're not doing it quick enough you're not doing it fast enough um and there was no you know the whole point of if you are really following the science then you are supposed to be able to question things. You are supposed to be able to, you know, scientific methods show that you're not doing anything right unless you constantly are sceptical mm. about the outcomes. You're constantly questioning things. I mean, it's in the news today across some, you know, some of the headlines that it's revealed that Boris Johnson asked whether or not um, COVID could be gotten rid of with a hairdryer up the nose or something like that. And everyone's kind of, ha, 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 what an idiot. And, yeah, yeah you might think that is pr pretty spe spectacularly stupid. On the other hand, I don't I, I don't think that we should be celebrating a situation in which a government has no dissent, no questions, where there's no space for someone to stand up and say, I don't think we should go to yeah. war or I don't think we should lock down. And do we really want to do this? And I think if, if the outcome of this inquiry is that there is less ability and space for our elected representatives to test out ideas and to... Mm and to ask questions and to maybe say the thing that no one wants to say, then that's a problem because that kind of enforced consensus leads to dangerous ends. Yeah, well, it's rather ironic, I find, at the moment that many people on the left, uh, and certainly in the Labour Party, who have been so critical of the way the government ran everything, didn't say anything at the time, didn't question anything, and went along with it, and in fact urged everybody to wear masks everywhere they went, and urged everybody to do what the government was telling them. So I'm not really buying any of their criticism, to be honest. But let's move on, uh, Ella, to um, a big weekend coming up. There's going to be another massive Palestinian demonstration, pro-Palestinian demonstration in London. Uh, there's calls for uh, a million-man march or a million-person march for, for Palestine from Trafalgar Square. Um, we've seen an awful lot of odd behaviour going on, not least in the police. We've seen uh, the release of mice into McDonald's because McDonald's were giving free meals to uh, members of the Israeli army. Um, the world has become a very odd place in the last couple of weeks, hasn't it? A very odd place and a very confusing place, I think, because, uh, you know, I will defend the right to protest to the death. Um, I think that all of, you know, the, the response to this should not be crackdowns on free speech, free expression or the right to assembly. On the other hand, I think, not on the other hand, alongside that defensive protest, I think we have to ask ourselves the question as to why there has been um, s s such an unwillingness 
on the part of uh, pro-Palestine and free Palestine protesters to call out Hamas and to point out that the greatest enemy to Palestinians' liberty and freedom is Hamas. <laughs> and that whenever, whatever kind of um, conversations, which I think are necessary and right to have, about the relationship between Israel and Palestine and Gaza and you know disputed territories and all the rest of it, we are in a situation in which you have had the butchery of Jews, um, the, the kidnapping of Jews, and still the retaining of Jewish hostages. And there just is, you know, whenever you see uh, protests and vigils standing in solidarity with that side, um, they're always Jewish people. They're, they're never, they have very little support outside of that community. Uh, in contrast with the kind of... Um, the pro-Palestine marches, which are, I know, full of students and my friends go to them, full of um, young people holding SWP banners, as they always do. Yeah. And I, th I think there's just we need to start asking questions about what really is going on here. If you say free Palestine in a context in which Hamas is in control and Hamas is in charge um, and knowing what Hamas believe in, knowing what they do, I think that is that is at least questionable. But the, the solution to this is more debate and not less. And that's very I know how hard it is to say that at a time when a lot of Jewish people are quite rightly feeling very mm. unsettled and frightened yeah. by the kind of behavior that's going on. Yeah, and I think just from the point of view of internalising all of the things that we're seeing, I mean, this morning's Sun front page, which has got pictures of all the 32 uh, innocent children currently being held hostage uh, by Hamas in those underground tunnels uh, in Gaza. It really does kind of focus the mind a little bit. You can see some of the pictures now. I mean, one of the children's only nine months old. And, I mean, I still find it very difficult. I know there's lots of people now saying things like, you know, oh, you shouldn't uh, uh, condemn one side if you can't condemn the other. You know, Piers Morgan last night uh, had uh, his uh, Bassam Yusuf guest on again last night talking about it all and, and how we shouldn't be um, too judgmental. It's very difficult not to be judgmental of a group of people who have taken children hostage and continue to hold them against their will, isn't it? It is, and I think it's a mistake to try to... You know, if we end up doing a sort of how many babies are you OK with being kidnapped or killed on each side, um, that that there's there's nothing to that. I mean, everybody, I think most decent people know that one life lost is one too many. Mm. Um, no one thinks, well, at least I don't think there's an OK level of death or anything like that. But I think it's wrong to compare what Hamas has done and its actions with the consequences of what Israel is now doing because they're not the same. Um, the politics of that is not the same. Mm. Uh, Israel, as far as I'm aware, does not have a sort of manifesto of of genocide, um, unlike Hamas, which has explicitly expressed its desire to wipe out Jews. Um, that's you know that is part of why it has taken the you know and that, why do you take a nine month old baby hostage? Mm. Um, if not something like that. So I think it's wrong to compare them. But, you know, we we need to have a basically we need to ask ourselves for the consequences of the wider region and, you know, the Middle East. All of this is, you know, it doesn't look good. There are no perfect solutions. I, you know, I, I, I think most people's heart goes out to everyone who's out there. But if Hamas is allowed to win and is allowed to survive and is allowed to continue taking the action that, that it's taken. It's not just bad for Jews, it's really bad for all of us.
Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Uh, the home of free speech, as we like to call it, and the home of uh, common sense, of course, as well. But hate speech laws uh, are being brought in, and they may be uh, intended to stifle free and open debate uh, in the United Kingdom. According to a new report from the Institute for Economic Affairs, uh, who attribute the growth in censorious incidents to the emergence of the culture-controlled left who have successfully weaponized concepts like hate speech and harm to push legislation that silences their political opponents. Now, joining me in the studio to discuss all of this is the author of that report, the Head of Cultural Affairs at the IEA, uh, Mr. Mark Glendinning. Mark, a very good morning to you. Thank you very much. And to you. Thank you for having me. Welcome to what we like to call the home of free speech. I mean, obviously... Is this a safe space? I just want to know that, It's definitely safe. Absolutely safe. I mean, I'd like to say you can say anything you want. Um, But, of course, that would be providing you make sure that you don't break any laws uh, or say anything which might be... Or upset you. You can upset me. No, upsetting me is absolutely fine. In fact, it's almost impossible to upset many people have found. Well, that's what Um, I'd like to hear. But I seem to upset a lot of other people. Um, Which is marvellous. That's what society... Society actually should not be a safe space for anybody. I mean, I grew up in a household where uh, my parents were both Scottish and they were very argumentative. And we used to sit around the dinner table and argue about all sorts of things from a very early age. So I kind of became quite good at arguing as a result of that. So my father kind of gave me this great legacy, uh, which I'm now... Um, you're now monetizing. Making, making a living out of. Yeah, exactly. So, so he, did, he did me a great thing. But we ne- what we never had was, was um, any rules about what you couldn't say and what you could say. And we now find ourselves in a kind of straitjacket uh, of, of rules and regulations, which are quite difficult to navigate. Tell us about your paper, first of all. Well, my, my paper argues uh, that we are now in the early stages of a transition mm. uh, from a liberal democratic society in which... There was, until about 30 years ago, virtually total uh, freedom of political speech. Uh, We're now moving, I think, into a post-democratic society in which those with power uh, have license to limit what views we can express. Mm. And they're using the sort of Orwellian concept of hate speech, which is the new kind of blasphemy law, uh, to suppress not just the incitement to group violence, Mm. which was the original understanding of hate speech, but now the actual content of what we say. So can I give you a quick example? A few weeks ago in Hebden Bridge in Yorkshire, a woman took a photograph of a transgender sceptical sticker. Mm. Somehow, and this is also very Orwellian, she was seen on CCTV, the police then turned up, a whole group of them, to her house, said, you've you've got this uh, image on your phone. If you pass that image on, um, you will be committing a hate crime. I mean, that is extraordinary, yeah. isn't and it? And also, in a, in a I don't even society. understand the following the legal argument of something like that, because surely if something has been posted publicly, on a, on a, whether it's on a billboard or whether it's on a window, on the back of a car, you know, that's published it. So the fact that you've taken a picture of it and then seek to maybe publish it elsewhere, I don't understand how that is then a crime. Yeah, well, I've put in some freedom of information requests to the West Yorkshire Constabulary. Oh, yeah. But, I mean... They're always have, in trouble. <laughs> yeah, but... Uh, Just going back to your point, in fact, it is becoming illegal to um, distribute material, Mm. which, for example, uh, gives the Oxford English Dictionary's definition of a woman. The Thames Valley Police have said that they will charge you under the Public Order Act if you reproduce that definition Mm. in the form of a pamphlet or a sticker. Yeah. 
So that's incredibly yeah, sinister, isn't it? It really is, because also... I don't understand why the police are getting so involved in this. I mean, we talk quite a lot to the, the, the fair cop group, you know, uh, uh, who have always been very hot on this. And when you see um, various different police forces putting out messages on their social media about preventing hate speech, and when you had the police in college, the College of Policing saying that, you know, actually we're now going to investigate non-crime hate crime, where you go... Well, that's really in sorry? interesting. Sorry? I mean, you're now yeah. telling me that you're investigating something which you've already declared not to be a crime, uh, because you wish to police the way that we speak to each other, I don't think that's got anything to do with the police. Well, of course, but the police are now turning themselves into a sort of watered-down version of the Iranian morality police, mm. because through this power which you've, you've just uh, referred to, that is enabling them to harass people right. politically who have committed no crime. And mm. I would suggest the reason for that is that every police force in this country has handed over public money mm. to an extreme transgender ideological movement, namely Stonewall. Right. And so I think they have created this data, sinister database mm. of non-convicted political criminals, because there are about 120,000 yeah. people on this list right. now, um, I mean, you might even be on. Well, I may be. Check. Nobody um, knows whether they're on. Because if you've been reported by Stonewall yeah. or some other group, right. the chances are the Metropolitan Police would just automatically put yeah. you and wouldn't have to inform you. I mean, There's I'm no amazed. There's no right every... of appeal to this. No, I'm amazed every day, Mark, that, you know, there isn't a huge posse of police waiting for me outside the door every time oh, I finish the show. Don't worry, there will be. I mean, you know, unbelievable. <laughs> we'll just make sure we've got a camera to film it all. But, you know, it is quite ridiculous, isn't it, that the police are active, actively doing this because there must be people high up in the police uh, organisations, whether it be Manchester or West Yorkshire or, or Metropolitan Police, indicating to the individual officers, this is what you must do. Absolutely. Because they keep That's telling us that they don't know, in other terms, what to do, for example. I mean, uh, the Palestinian protest is a good uh, case in point. They seem very reluctant to arrest anyone who's shouting jihad and calling for a holy war. In fact, they're falling over backwards to explain that Jihad can mean many different things. You know, it might not mean that yeah. at all. It might just mean being a good Muslim. They're falling over backwards to make sure that people don't think that an ISIS flag that looks like an ISIS flag to the naked eye is apparently not an ISIS flag. It's an Islamic faith flag. You know, and they're not arresting people for actual crimes. They're waiting until after the event, asking people if they know who any of these people are who were committing crimes while they were being watched by the police. Yeah, and of course, there's asymmetrical policing in this particular context as well because the campaign against anti-Semitism, mm. their vans were stopped by the police. Yes. They had vans uh, with images of the yes, people who have been kidnapped. Of the hostages, and the yeah. police intervened actively, yeah. proactively, right. to stop those vans going around right. uh, Parliament Square. But at the same time, further up the road, there was a pro-Hamas uh, demonstration right. taking place. Right. Now, I'm a free speech fundamentalists. So I believe everybody has the equal right to say things which yeah. other people may consider obscene and offensive. Uh, you, freedom of speech has to be a two-way street in yes. democracy. So I respect the rights of the pro-Palestinian lot to say stuff I don't agree with and I consider to be obscene. But surely uh, the campaign against anti-Semitism have the equal right mm -hmm to go onto well, the streets it's, it's of London and say whatever they yeah, want Yeah, well, it's interesting say. you say that because the police's uh, version of all of this is always, well, we don't want you to do it because it might cause division and it might cause a public order problem because people are going to get so upset with you that they're going to start attacking you. So the police claim that they're doing it for your own protection. Of but, of course, they won't say that to the people who are pro Hamas yeah. because you can only then um, conclude that they are operating from a place of some... 
um, political viewpoint that they've well, taken. Well, they definitely are. So, I mean, the police, for example, um, have people from pro-transgender ideological organisations, mm. people promoting critical race theory, yes. which is a really sinister mm. and itself a racist right. uh, perspective, in my opinion. Yeah. They have people coming in to train the police. So there's a kind yeah. of re-education programme right. taking place and within the public sinister. sector yeah. and within our schools. And also well. within the NHS and within all sorts a of across civil service departments. And, we and saw big business as yeah. well. I mean, we, we saw, saw the coots. Well, I, mean, I was going to say, let's, let's bring that in as yeah. well, because how on earth did Stonewall manage to get such a foothold into our society? When did it start happening? How was it allowed? And, you know, how is it possible now uh, that we have got an entire society sort of based around some rather vapid and bizarre rules which we've been handed down by Stonewall. I mean, nobody asked for it, nobody elected them, nobody said this is what we must do. Yep. But instead now we find that, you know, our behaviour is being prescribed by some sort of organisation which we know very little about, quite frankly. Yeah, I mean, in a democracy, um, public sector institutions like the police have to have a self-denying ordinance. They have to be politically non-partisan. Yeah. And what we're seeing now is that that mindset has been has, has completely gone. So we're getting public sector institutions now pushing a very extreme political agendas mm. like critical race theory yeah. and transgender uh, ideology. Yes. Uh, and so they're using their power to suppress the expression of, of views mm. uh, that uh, some sections of the community have. Now, yeah. you're not living in a democracy if certain groups have a political privilege mm. and other groups start with no. a disadvantage and the threat Absolutely of maybe not. actual criminal prosecution. Yeah, exactly right. I mean, I have loads of people contacting me and, and I've run into them at certain things that I go to, some of whom are high profile, some of whom are not, who say, I really love listening to your show, but I can't admit to it because, you know, my, my yeah. fellow people in my business or the fellow people that I, that I mix with socially would think that it was horrendous because, you know, those who don't actually know me and, and who don't understand what it is that we do here, uh, which I'm very proud of and which I think is very open and, and, and willing to discuss almost anything, you know, I'm tainted as some kind of right-wing mad bigot, you know, who hates foreigners uh, and hates, uh, you know, anybody saying anything which is in any way left-wing. It's quite the reverse. You know, I'm very happy to have t discussions and debates. For example, when you say you're a free speech fundamentalist, you know, I'm sort of slightly not not quite at that point because I'll say, for example, to you, I mean, so the argument about not shouting fire in a crowded theatre, are you saying that you would say you can shout fire in a crowded theatre? That's a different type of speech. That's not political speech. No. I, I'm saying there should be complete, total political speech. I don't have the right to legislate for what another adult human being can say. Mm. And equally, I believe I have a natural right in a liberal society to say whatever I want to yeah. say. Um, shouting fire in a in a theatre is a different type of speech, uh, which violates the contract between the, the theatre owners and those paying patrons who come into the theatre yeah. uh, with an understanding that you can't do certain types of things. So right. that comes down really to a question of private property. Does that cover, I don't have does the that right cover... to go into the Labour Party headquarters no. or, uh, and say whatever right. I want to say. They have a right to exclude me from yes. their private space. Well, see, but my... what we're talking about is public, yes. the right to express views in public. Yeah. See, my version, of it is, my version of it is that you should be able to express whatever you want 
but you must also understand there might be consequences to that. So that therefore, yeah. if you do say something which turns out to be an incitement to violence, or if you do say something which turns out to be uh, an incitement to illegal activity of some kind, then you will face the consequences of that. And so you should. But it doesn't mean you shouldn't say it. That's kind of where I am. I right. Um, I mean, there are certain types of speech, for example, to connected to fraud, yeah. say, which are not political. Right. That's not political free speech. And that is connected to a physical activity which is actually a violation mm. of somebody else's property rights. So that's a completely different right. category of communication. That's not what I'm talking about. Right. I'm talking no, but the about police the and others are taking those yeah. sort of speeches that may be political and turning them into things that might cause a danger to society and or uh, the local environment. So they're using almost those kind of things that you're saying are nothing to do with, with political free speech and, and, and sort of superimposing yeah. political free speech over them. And that way lies the road to sort of fascistic authoritarianism. Yes. Because when the state can just arbitrarily decide, decide what, what you can constitutes say. legitimate it's speech. It's true. And they, hate speech is an Orwellian concept. Yeah. And it really we've is. got to get rid of it. The state has no right to legislate mm. for our emotions. Quite right. Mark, we can talk all day. We'll have to do this again because there's a lot to say. Mark Glendinning there from the, the IEA. Welcome back. You're watching The Independent Republican, Mike Graham, right here on Talk TV. We did this story a little bit earlier in the week and we discovered that there's currently a global shortage of various different medications, numerous different medications prescribed to treat ADHD uh, because there's been an excessive increase in demand and supply has been disrupted. Millions of adults and young children are affected uh, and its effects are really, really taking hold in the United Kingdom. Supply disruptors are expected to be resolved by December 2023. That's later on this year. But the impact of this shortage is colossal. We heard, of course, earlier this week uh, from Vince, one of our uh, listeners and viewers, whose son, uh, uh, Bradley, who's 12, was suffering because he had to go back to school uh, and without the ADHD medicine, he found it very difficult to concentrate, found it very difficult uh, to get on with his work. And so we hope to have solved the problem for, uh, for little Bradley uh, and for his dad and for his family. But joining me to discuss the impact of these medical shortages, the medicinal shortages, that's psychotherapist Lucy Berifers. Lucy, thanks very much indeed uh, for joining us. Um, by coincidence, after I'd been in contact with, with our, our, uh, our, our viewer, Vince, the Sunday Times did a piece at the weekend talking about how there's been a big increase in the numbers of people um, being affected by ADHD and people yeah. who are getting medication, which I suppose could explain why there's a shortage, but we shouldn't really be running out of medicine, should we? No, uh, it is only partly due to the fact that there is a massive 50% increase in mm. the number of people who are now receiving prescriptions. So it was roughly uh, 100,000 people before right. the pandemic, 200,000 people now. That's, mm. you know, a huge increase. So it's doubled. But it is also, it has doubled, but it is also a global phenomenon, yeah. unfortunately, right. that actually there's a global shortage, and that's partly because the manufacturers in India and China are really struggling. Mm. Um, uh, but that also speaks to where you get your supplies. You know, are you just, con is the NHS only concentrating on maybe a handful of mm. suppliers? Should they be actually broadening their base? But it speaks, unfortunately, to a wider mental health crisis problem, yeah. but also a medicine shortage. So this time last year, it was women on HRT who were right, suffering remember, those yeah. shortages. And the real worry is how people cope with that. Mm. Because what they tend to do is they tend to start being very creative with their medication. Yes. So what you're hearing stories are of people who are only taking their dosage 
once a day right. or instead of twice a day, or they're taking it every other day. Mm. And of course, you can't, that's not how you should treat your medication. No. It's a very serious thing and you should be very compliant. But what else are you going to do if you know that coming down the track is, an, is a moment in time where you might not have any medication mm. at all? Well, that's right. And I, mean, I know that from, from our, our, our viewer who, who called in to talk to us about it, he did exactly that because they had half term. And while half term was there, they were sort of rationing uh, the medicine so that they would have it throughout the course of time. But mm. they needed, but they knew they were going to run out as he went back to school. And it's obviously yeah. when he's at school that he needs it the most because the, the condition um, obviously affects people in different ways, but it seems to affect the concentration levels. It, uh, it affects the, 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 the kind of the, um, uh, I suppose, the mood of the person taking yeah. the medicine as well. And the also, if you're, are... if you're changing medicine all the time, that's not good either, right? Well, exactly. I mean, there, there is often a period of time when you're working out whether that particular dosage or that particular medication really suits you. So right. there can be some fluidity around that. But once you're on a regimen that really works for you and you get on with the rest of your life, mm. you don't then suddenly want to go back to the drawing board and discover that either you've got to start taking something different mm. or that you're not taking anything at all. And right. as you say, the actual symptoms, particularly of ADHD, are really very debilitating. So it is about having poor concentration, lack of focus, maybe uh, increased impulsivity, which is, you know, not a good thing to have. No. It's why you're on the medication in the first place. So it is actually a really serious thing. I think what needs to happen is that manufacturers need to be a bit smarter about alerting governments and practices and clinics that actually they are experiencing a shortage because right. obviously they're at the front end of creating they're this seeing, product. Yeah. And if they're actually not getting the stuff through or there's a shortage of some of the ingredients that go to make the medicine, then actually they should be the ones alerting. It shouldn't really be left to the government saying, okay, you haven't right. delivered. These are the protocols mm. that now need to be in place. But what the NHS is actually doing very swiftly is to make sure that GPs are aware of this. Because what you want to avoid is diagnosing someone at the moment. And this is the real problem. Mm. People are being diagnosed right now but they don't have any medication right. to go on to. So what it, it, uh, GPs are being warned, you know, don't issue those first um, prescriptions for right. someone because they're not going to be able to if get the medication. they can't fill them, because there's nothing worse, is there, than going to a pharmacy to get what you think is going to solve the problem, only yeah. to find that they haven't got it. feels got like it. your lifeline. And yeah. at the moment, it feels like that lifeline has been taken away. And obviously, we can't necessarily expect you to have an answer for this, but if there were to be some other alternative, for example, if you're... Uh, the parent of a child who, who has been diagnosed, but you have run out or you can't get the medication. Um, is there anything else that, that you can do to ameliorate the condition? Well, certainly talking about it mm. so that your child doesn't feel lost and, and really at the mercy of their own moods. Yeah. I mean, the interesting thing is that non-invasive treatments like meditation have a really good track record, particularly for school-aged children. Mm. And if you can get them to meditate, which of course is counterintuitive because they're yeah. the ones that want to be very impulsive right. and want to run around and not concentrate. But if you can actually get them to develop that skill of actually even sitting, even if it's just for five minutes and then build it up every day, six minutes, seven mm. minutes, you're teaching them a coping skill that can take them into adulthood. It can actually complement the medicine that they're getting, but it can also be a really brilliant tool to have alongside you when, in fact, these, these moments may arise. Okay. Lucy, thank you very much indeed. Lucy Pleasure. Beresford, the psychotherapist, uh, with the latest news from that shortage that we reported on a little bit earlier this week. Across the UK, online and on DAB, the independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday on Talk Radio, via DAB, online, or via the Talk Radio app. If you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio.
A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Even on a budget, quality is non negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.